welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 54 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I'm your host today. I can't believe we're on episode 54. Every time I say the episode I think, oh my goodness, how did we get here? 54 episodes, that's like, like a lot. Yeah, it's been a lot. Um, today's episode is going to be about Enoch Powell and his Rivers of Blood speech. Now, I have had in my mind to do this episode for a really long time. Um, and, like, I think maybe a year ago, as in, like, this time last year, I, like, planned it. And then, for whatever reason, I just wasn't in the mood to talk about him. But, in the kind of context of a lot of things that are happening in society regarding immigration... His words just hmm, seem to be important, not because I agree with them, of course, but um, seem to be something that should be discussed. So this episode is going to be split into four sections. Nice structure today. Number one will be about who is Enoch Powell, um, some context on his life. Uh, When and why did he make the speech will be the second question. So setting the context um, of the actual speech and him delivering it. Section three will be dissecting the speech and section four will look at the impact of the speech. Um, Might break that into two sections and think about the impact then in the immediate uh, aftermath and then the impact today uh, and on society now. This speech was given um, in 1968. So fifty year the 50 year anniversary was in 2018. There was a lot of reflection on it at the time. So a lot of the information I'm using is actually from the kind of context of 2018 uh, where we were in the midst of um, you know coming out of the Brexit referendum Um, so you know conversations about immigration were very uh, pertinent at that time. I'm also using information from Robert Shepard's biography uh, on Enoch Powell, uh, Hypocrites on Immigration um, and also from news reports um, and a variety of other sources, um, articles and Uh, Some historians as well. We're going to get some historians' opinions as well today. So a very full-on episode. Um, You'll have to stick with me because Enoch Powell, I think, is a very complex character. Um, A very problematic one, in my opinion. Um, But I think it's good to get all sides of him before we delve into the speech itself. So, without further ado, who was Enoch Powell? Enoch Powell was born on the 16th of June 1912 in Stetchford, Birmingham. Uh, And he'd probably have a heart attack if he saw how multicultural Stetchford is now. Um, He was, all in all, many things. A politician, scholar, um, author, linguist, soldier, poet. Um, He was a Gemini. (laughs) Um, And that's not really relevant, but it is because, uh, yeah, he gives that energy. I would say, uh, especially when it comes to topics of race, shall we say, and immigration. Um, yeah, so he starts his like life and his career as a classical scholar, obviously going to Cambridge, um, and starts an academic career. However, the Second World War breaks out in 1939, um, and at that point he's working as um, a scholar in Australia, benefiting obviously from Britain's far-reaching empire and subsequent commonwealth um, even though he was clearly in his later life not the biggest fan of immigration but here he was in Australia 
Um, he promptly came home when the war broke out and enlisted in the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. Instead of waiting to be called up, he claimed to be Australian because Australians were allowed to enlist straight away um, as they'd obviously spent so much to get to England, uh, like the armed forces didn't think it right for them to wait to join. They would join immediately um, and Enoch Powell wanted to join the war effort as quickly as possible. So pretended to be Australian. Again, hilarious when you hear his views on immigration. But of course, they were talking about he was talking about black and brown people. And as a white man, I don't think he thought those rules applied to him. So, he climbed the ranks uh, during the army. Uh, He was promoted repeatedly due to his language skills from his classics degrees uh, and academic life. Um, And they tended to shock people because, you know, he would just kind of, you know, speak these other languages that obviously he'd acquired and learnt, um, and they would help him a lot. Uh, He was posted in Cairo, uh, Algiers and Delhi in India, but never actually experienced any combat, and he felt quite guilty about that, um, it's been said he would have rather uh, died in the war um, as that would have been the honourable thing to do uh, as opposed to surviving in his in his views. Um, after the war, he actually and interestingly voted for Labour um, in the 1945 election to punish the Tories for the Munich Agreement, which was an agreement made before World War II, um, which was meant to prevent war, which obviously didn't. Um, but he then joined the Conservatives, and I think he was politically aligned with the Conservatives, even though he voted for Labour in that election, um, and worked for the Conservative Research Department. He had ambitions to be the Viceroy of India, but they crumbled uh, when Prime Minister Clement Attlee announced that Indian independence was imminent in 1947. Um, Powell was so shocked by the change of policy um, of India gaining their independence, that he spent the whole night after it was announced walking the streets of London, it's been said. Um, and to kind of get over that and the fact that his ambition of becoming, you know, literally the the monarch's eyes and ears and person on the ground in India, um, he actually became very anti-imperialist um, and believed that once India had gone and got their independence, the whole empire should follow um, and Britain should, I don't know whether to let, let all the colonies and all the countries tied to Britain be free or whether they should take their independence. He wasn't very clear uh, or I didn't really find out why and what he meant by that. Um, He was eventually elected as a Conservative Member of Parliament for Wolverhampton South West at the 1950 general election um, after failings in a by-election in 1947 where he was not able to beat out the Labour candidate. Um, so his political career kind of begins to develop at this point. He starts as um, an MP. He goes into the role of junior housing minister. Uh, he's financial secretary to the treasurer. Um, and he also becomes minister of health. As minister of health, uh, Enoch Powell was, um, shall we say, uh, an interesting health minister. Um, He actually didn't become a member of the cabinet until 1962, although he was appointed health minister in 1960. Um, He, you know, made some decisions, commented on some things, didn't do certain things. Some of the examples of what he did in this role were uh, interesting because um, if you remember or not, if you have learned about the drug thalidomide, um, which was given to pregnant women, 
um, to stop like morning sickness, but it actually led to their babies being born with deformities. Um, during this time, um, that scandal was kind of breaking and well, it's more than a scandal, it's a tragedy. Um, and these babies were being born and these families um, were, you know, dealing with the fact that their children were deformed. Um, and he refused to meet any of the babies affected by the drug and he also refused to launch a public inquiry um, and he resisted calls uh, to issue a warning against any leftover thalidomide pills um, that people might still have, you know, just because, you know, you don't always finish the dosage um, and you might have it left over, um, which is what JFK, US president, had done. Um, he didn't do that. Um, also, he spoke of his opposition to immigration this is 1967, um, of the Kenyan Asians coming to the UK after um, Kenya's leader, Jomo Kenyatta. He, his policies um, were obviously against uh, Asians in the country and he had dispelled them in a similar way to Idi Amin in Uganda. Um, and he spoke of this opposition to it um, and bills were passed to restrict it, but they were rescinded um, by way of different kind of grants at the time. You can listen more in the immigration episode I did a few weeks ago um, to learn more about that. Also, um, during the 1960s is when a lot of the Windrush generation were coming over um, to supply the NHS with labour. Um, and this is a common myth, misconception I've heard. I don't... I really wanted to find some concrete evidence that this, like was true of the fact that um, Enoch Powell would have recruited um, people from the Commonwealth and from the Caribbean to come to Britain to work in the NHS. But I kept reading in places that he actually didn't do that. But I've heard that so many times from people and the kind of um, parallel of what he said in his Rivers of Blood speech to the policy of recruiting um, people from the Caribbean. Um, but he did say, and this is a direct quote, uh, recruitment was in the hands of hospital authorities, but this was something that happened of its own accord, um, immigrant workers coming over. Given that there was no bar upon entry and the employment in the United Kingdom to those from the West Indies or anywhere else in the Commonwealth or colonies, he welcomed uh, immigrant nurses and doctors under the condition that they would be temporary workers, training in the UK, uh, would return to their native countries, qualified doctors and nurses, which we know um, is not what happened. Um, a lot of that generation ended up staying um, until they had children and their children had children and some of their children have children and here we are today. Um, so, yeah, just some interesting things that occurred while he was health minister. So this is kind of the context. Now, Rivers of Blood speech. When and why did he make this speech? So, the Rivers of Blood speech was made on the 20th of April 1968, where he warned his audience of what he believed would be the consequences of continued, unchecked mass immigration from the Commonwealth to the UK. He didn't speak of any countries in particular, um, he spoke of immigration quite widely and from the Commonwealth, but I think it's very clear that he was talking about black and brown people, um, and not migrations of white people, because at that time, uh, immigration was racialized, um, and the problems that occurred from immigration were blamed on the black and brown immigrants that were coming over, even though they were not the ones perpetrating racism or being racially violent. Now, 
he was speaking at the Midland Hotel in Birmingham, um, which is now actually the Burlington Hotel, if anyone knows Birmingham well, on New Street. Um, and I always, whenever I think about that, I always think like, wow, that was like really close to home. And also Birmingham being so close to like places like Handsworth in the 60s, which were home to so many people from uh, the Caribbean and from Asia and India, especially at that time, just how kind of crazy that was and more than crazy really, but just so I think little care into what the impact could be on people that had recently migrated to this country um, and how they might be treated after he said these words. Um, he was speaking to um, an invited audience of conservative supporters only, um, but he obviously knew the speech was would travel um, and his words would carry, and he was so confident in that um, and the impact of what that speech would hold. He actually sent advance copies to ITV Central, ATV and his local newspaper, the Wolverhampton Express and Star. Um, and he told his friend, who was the editor, and I quote, I'm going to make a speech at the weekend and it's going to go up. Fizz like a rocket. But whereas all rockets fall to earth, this one is going to stay up. Um, and I think that's kind of exactly what happened. Now, as we know, by the late 1960s, when Enoch Powell was making this speech, hundreds of, th hundreds of thousands of Commonwealth citizens had exercised their legal right and settled in the UK. Um, they were working in a variety of jobs. Uh, they had children. They were building communities, churches, families, um, and, you know, making Britain their home. Additionally, um, and also quite importantly, uh, I think it's good to note that um, most employees in Britain were facing a labour shortage um, and were actively recruiting in the wider world, um, especially where workers were cheap because there were no uh, anti-discrimination laws yet. However, one was in the process of being passed and being debated um, and it was a very interesting time for um, this speech to be made because the race relations bill was literally making its way through Parliament um, and whether this was his kind of last-ditch attempt to sway people and have them vote against it and make it legal still to discriminate against people based on their colour um, when engaging in commercial services. Um, obviously, at the time, you know, the rhetoric, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, um, and discrimination was very much... I wouldn't say necessarily socially acceptable, but it wasn't exactly frowned upon and it wasn't necessarily spoken out against and it was expected by most black or brown people. Um, the Conservative Party were actually unsure whether to support this legislation um, and apparently the speech was also designed to try and bounce the Tory leader Ted Heath into opposing it um, and that was kind of Enoch Powell's reasoning. Now... Also, I think important to note, um, and I love when like history gets global and you start having to tie in what's happening in the rest of the world to this little island called Britain. Now, this speech, as I've said, was made on the 21st of April 1968 and Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered on the 4th of April 1968. And at this current moment, America are in the depths of mourning the loss of Martin Luther King. And this morning wasn't like any other morning. There were riots. America was, in many ways, burning. 
and you know people had had absolutely enough because this man who had spoken out for non-violence um quite loudly and quite vocally had now been killed in the most violent way and those americans um that might have supported non-violent action um a lot of them had had enough and thought oh this doesn't work um so you've got this political tension and i don't know like when you think about the impact that the murder of george floyd had even in the uk now think about the death of martin luther king on caribbean people here in the uk that are also suffering at the same fate there is no anti-discrimination law yet they're not able to get housing they're being discriminated against in their jobs their children are at school you know these are all going to tie in and i think the kind of black consciousness um would have been hurting and i think enoch powell knew exactly what he was doing picking this exact time to give this speech and it becomes i think more insidious when you kind of put that into context as well now to dissect this speech we are on section three already look at us go um so i didn't know how best to do this uh i didn't really want to play not powell's voice i can't lie to you um so you're just gonna have me reading it out um there are some chunks where it really just does need a big quote to be read out um maybe i should have got like a guest to to just break up the sound of my voice but um yeah i didn't i don't have obviously have copyright for his speech all of it wasn't recorded anyway itv news have i think the most of it but they don't even have all of it and in a report i watched um following 50 years after the news report i literally had to read out like the juicy bits of the speech because they weren't all captured on on video footage or they don't have access you can really easily access a transcript of the speech so there literally type in enoch powell rivers of blood pdf um if you want to actually like read it all um you know it's it would be sensible uh if you wanted to get the full gist of what he was saying i'm only going to give you a few chunks because we'd be here all day i think the pdf was six pages or nine pages um and he knows what he's doing he knows how to use words he is a great orator he's had a career as an academic and a scholar in classics so you know he knows exactly how to twist words use language in order to push his agenda and also we have to remember the fact that you know he has been around he's seen the world at this point in his life he's born in 1912 you know he's lived through two world wars um and seen a lot of things and so I don't think you can kind of take this speech as some kind of like uneducated ramblings, racist ramblings um, of an older man. You really have to see this as well thought through. You know, he's written this beforehand and he's given it to the newspaper crews so that they can print it the next day or have it ready after this speech explodes. He's gone before and done that. You know, it's not like he's done the speech and someone said, oh, actually, can we have a copy? That was quite good. He's planned this. He knows his speech is going to have a huge impact on Britain and the political landscape. He's saying things that the average person he feels can't say. Um, and he's feeling like he's taking on the mantle um, of racial justice um, and saying the things that the poor white man can't say. So please listen in. Um, and here we go with our dissection. <laughs> So the speech opens with 
The supreme function of statesmanship is to provide against preventable evils. In seeking to do so, it encounters obstacles which are deeply rooted in human nature. So this is him kind of saying that he feels it's his responsibility to speak up as his supreme function of statesmanship um, to kind of stop these quote-unquote preventable evils, which is immigration and black and brown people as a consequence of coming over to the UK. Um, you know, he's kind of saying, you know, if I don't speak up, who will? It's my job as, you know, my role in this society to be a statesman um, and say something. So, you know, he's clearly taking responsibility of this great evil, um, which is deeply rooted um, in society that he feels. Um, he goes on, and I quote, Above all, people are disposed to mistake predicting troubles for causing troubles, and even for desiring troubles. If only they love to think, if only people wouldn't talk about it, it probably wouldn't happen. Perhaps this habit goes back to the primitive belief that the word and the thing, the name and the object are identical. So here he's saying, essentially, um, some people might criticise him for speaking up, um, and people might say that if he is predicting the future, he's kind of speaking it into existence and willing it to happen, where he's saying he has to kind of predict the trouble to kind of stop it from happening so people act before it's too late. Um, and yeah, he's kind of just justifying basically everything he's about to say in his speech. And then he gets into this kind of populist argument. Um, and I wanted to bring in a historian, Robert Saunders, um, who speaks about this um, speech and says, um, and I quote, If you take that speech in 1968, you have the manifesto of modern populism, the idea that speaking out against immigration is the act of a courageous and visionary statesman. It's the idea that what immigrants want is domination. What they want is the whip hand over the local population. It's the idea that what liberalism is about is about giving privileges and preferences to minority groups, and that has been the position of populists ever since. So he's kind of saying that um, populism is rooted, well not rooted, it's kind of being used um, in a kind of mainstream and public way in this speech and it's kind of birthing it um, and this idea that immigrants all they want is dominion they want the whip hand over lo the local population which we're going to get to soon um, and that liberation liberalism sorry is about giving privileges and preferences to minority groups as opposed to the kind of average original so they say native british um person um and then this is really where i think this is kind of optimized this idea of you know the courageous and visionary statesman speaking out for the people that haven't got a voice um and enoch powell's tool in this speech a lot he uses it so many times is it he gets examples and anecdotal evidence from his quote-unquote constituents or people in his area or stories passed on from other people to make you feel sorry for these people um as if their views aren't just racist i was no i wasn't moved personally mr powell um but i won't read all of the kind of anecdotes but i will read this one um because it's the most interesting i would say he says and i quote 
A week or two ago, I fell into conversation with a constituent, a middle-aged, quite ordinary working man, employed in one of our nationalised industries. Now, think about this now. Middle-aged, quite ordinary working man, pushing all the things that are, quote-unquote, average about society, you know? This standard white man um, who is working, he's got a job, um, and is in a nationalised industry, so he's serving the country, um, and he carries on. After a sentence or two about the weather, he suddenly said, if I had the money to go, I wouldn't stay in this country. He's going to be from the Midlands as well, so I'll give a bit more with the accent. Give me a sec. I made some deprecatory reply to the effect that even this government wouldn't last forever, but he took no notice and continued, I have three children, all of them have been through grammar school and two of them married now with family. I shan't be satisfied till I have seen them all settled overseas in this country in 15 or 20 years. Time the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. Really and truly, guys, I'm so sorry. That accent was horrible. Um, yeah, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please, please, please forgive me. But you get the point. The whip hand, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. The imagery of it all, the irony, the, oh my word. Honestly, whenever I read that, hear that, see that, it just shocks me every single time. I just don't, I don't understand. It's like, no, no. And I just feel like nobody said this to Enoch Powell. I just cannot, nobody, no constituent said this. There's no quite ordinary working man, middle-aged, employed in the nationalised industries. He didn't say this. I'm sorry. I don't believe it for a second. I, know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is not like, I'm not laughing at the situation or what's been said. I'm laughing at the absurdity of it all. Enoch Powell goes on. He says, I can already hear the chorus of excoration. How dare I say such a horrible thing? How dare I stir up trouble and inflame feelings by repeating such a conversation? The answer is that I do not have the right not to do so. Here is a decent, ordinary fellow Englishman. See, we're using those adjectives again. Decent Englishman. They always put them two together. Like, what does that even mean? Anyway. Who in broad daylight in my own town says to me, his member of parliament, that his country will not be worth living in for his children. Oh, my word. Um, he didn't say, oh, my word, by the way. That was just me. Um, but, yeah, so just... Enoch Powell is kind of basically justifying his views through these, I think, imaginary characters of constituents that are, have think that the black man will have the whip hand over the white man um, in 15 or 20 years' time, which would mean, actually, from 1968, 20 years' time would have been 1988. Um, that didn't happen, Mr Powell. Um, so, yeah, there's that. Um, not that that would be any good thing positive thing no no I don't think anybody want, would want that don't think anybody would want a return of slavery or anybody having the whip hand over anyone um but yeah you can just see this kind of what um Robert Saunders said about this kind of like populist argument that um immigrants want domination and dominion and like to rule it's it's a very interesting and I think comes from quite a place of a guilty conscience really if you think that black people might want to actually, you know, get revenge on what happened in the past or avenge their ancestors in that way. Um, yeah, I find it very, very interesting. Um, you know, 
And in the article I read um, that quoted Robert Saunders, it said that Powell was a man of enormous intellectual gifts, but he was curiously oblivious to the ironies of that which he bequeathed us. us. Um, wonderful word, bequeathed. Um, but yeah, he's just, you know, he's using all these um, rhetorical questions and he's talking to himself and assuming what the audience might think. Um, you know, how dare I say such a horrible thing? How dare I stir up trouble? That's exactly what you're doing. He knows exactly what he's doing and he knows how it will be portrayed. And he tries to do damage control, you know, only like one A4 page into the speech. He's already having to kind of, you know, say... I think this is how you might take this, but this is not what I mean. I am just being honest. I am telling everybody what they need to hear. Um, yeah, very interesting tactics. It's kind of, it's giving like, when I was working in the school, um, in the English department um, in my past life, um, and we had to give the the children um, like non-fiction texts to work on and they had to write their own and they had to use different language techniques like rhetorical questions, anecdotes, facts, statistics, um, adjectives, the rule of three, similes, metaphors, you know how it is um, if you've gone through the British education system and you've done GCC language. Um, but yeah, it felt like he was just pulling out all the like the non-fiction writing language techniques um, that I was trying to teach um, children uh, in the past life. So very, very interesting. It's very emotive. He's really trying to stir up the sympathies of all those that are listening and not just his audience because he's already sent it to print so the people that will be reading it in tomorrow's paper as well um you know he carries on and he carries on with scaremongering he starts with the other non-fiction techniques like using facts statistics i say facts they're these weird data heavy predictions that are actually are rooted in no data and are not factually accurate in any way shape or form um, but he says in 15 or 20 years on present trends, there will be in this country three and a half million Commonwealth immigrants and their descendants. That is not my figure. That is the official figure given to Parliament by the spokesman of the Registrar General's Office. There is no comparable figure for the year 2000, but it must be in the region of five to seven million, approximately one tenth of the whole population and approaching that of Greater London. So he's he's talking about numbers now. He's saying the population of Britain will be potentially 10% black, Asian, non-white, which is where I, I was kind of keen to point out the fact that he's not worried about the immigration of white people because if you think about it, all the things that he's bringing up that people are worried about, his fake constituents or whoever the people are that might have said what they said, um you know, he, they're not talking about the white man or white woman that's coming from Australia, maybe, or Ireland anymore, who, you know, Irish people were once racialized as anothered, um, when you think about the no dogs, no Irish, no black signs, but now that changes, and immigration and the racialization of immigrants as being black or brown, um, and causing problems in this UK, um, and I say black or brown, but back then in the um, end of the 60s, everybody was that wasn't white was black. Um, political blackness was used. So when he's talking about the black man, he's not just talking about, you know, Caribbean people, African people. He's also talking about Asian people who in Wolverhampton at that time were a sizable community and are still today. Um, so, you know, by no means think this is just in reference to black people. It's just so I clarify that because... You know, when when we get into some decades where political blackness isn't a thing and I'm just talking about, like, black-skinned black people, and even then, black is such a contentious word. Let's not go into that today because, you know, too many problems, too many debates. But 
Essentially, this speech is talking about the immigration of non-white people and the problems that that's going to cause. One-tenth of the population. Um, I think we actually have reached that um, as black and brown people. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe we wait for the 2021 census to come out. But, um, yeah, you know, rather than actually suggesting the positives of a more multicultural society and, you know, those in the empire and the commonwealth actually having the freedom to live where they want to live, just like he did moving to Australia. Um, I think it's quite interesting that he sees this as a big threat. Um, he talks about that distribution and that it won't be dis- evenly distributed. London essentially will be overrun and smaller areas and further north areas will be, um, you know, just kind of the original <laughs> original native British English people, whatever they are. Um But yeah, he plays on the fact that this idea that was common, that immigrants brought racism with them and are now causing racial tension, violence and attacks, when we know that racism already existed in England and the black and brown people that came over unveiled it because, you know, these racist people were forced to share society, share community with people that don't look like them. Um, But... I feel like the way that racism is spoken about sometimes in this country is if it's the fault of black people or brown people and it's it's their doing by coming over they brought racism with them um that's not actually how it worked um anyway he goes on and I won't quote but he talks about like dependence and the strain on national services um he says that you know 20 or 30 additional immigrant children are arriving from overseas in Wolverhampton every, alone every week he kind of zooms into his constituency he basically like uses Wolverhampton as the kind of case study and then applies it out to the rest of England um and and hopes i guess everybody will agree um he feels like and this is some crazy imagery it is like watching a nation busily engaged in heaping up its own funeral pyre as in the fire to burn the body of a funeral on a funeral kind of setup. He thinks that England is essentially killing itself and planning its own funeral um, because of the strain that dependents are going to have on national services, regardless and not actually considering the fact that their parents, these dependents, um, you know, their guardians and parents are actually working people within this British economy and paying taxes and are very, very, very much um allowed to legally um to access these services such as education and healthcare and for the most part they're actually working in education and healthcare and transport so very interesting that he kind of you know doesn't mention the fact um that this is the tax money of said immigrants who then obviously need their children to be educated in said system um yeah so then he gets in, and this is where I just feel like he goes too far. Like, uh, you know, if we could <laughs> tolerate the first bit, this is where I'm like, nah, you've gone too far, sir, Mr. Powell. He says, and I want you to remember back to the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. has been murdered only like two weeks before. Nothing is more misleading than comparison between the Commonwealth immigrant in Britain and the American Negro. That's right, he brings in the American Negro. The Negro population of the United States, which was already in existence before the United States became a nation, 
started literally as slaves and were later given the franchise and other rights of citizenship, to the exercise of which they have only gradually and still incompletely come. The Commonwealth immigrant came to Britain as a full citizen to a country which knew no discrimination between one citizen and another, and he entered instantly into the possession of the rights of every citizen, from the vote to free treatment under the National Health Service. Oh, my life! Sorry. So, basically, Enoch Powell at this point is saying that black people in America, I won't call them the Negro population, um, and it's 1968, there's absolutely no need for that language either. He knows exactly what he's doing, um, separating, you know. Anyway, he is saying that black people in America started off as slaves. I don't know why he's forgetting that black people in Britain were also slaves at some points and in the British colonies, okay? So, black people in America started off as slaves and then were given franchise and other rights of citizenship and they still haven't had them all. So he's basically saying, right, black people in Britain shouldn't have been given everything. They shouldn't be full citizens. There should be dis some discrimination because he feels like one citizen should be higher than another, i.e. British-born citizens should be higher than colony-born citizens. Um, and the fact that they have the right to vote, the right to free treatment under the National Health Service, which they are mostly working in, is a problem for him. He feels like the position of black people in America, this is what I'm getting, maybe this is me overanalyzing, you know, this is why I would suggest if you really want to get to the nitty gritty of this, you should read it yourself, get that transcript out, get some highlighters, get some annotations done. But essentially he's saying that black people in Britain have too many rights and they should be treated like black people in America, um, only just getting some rights and still being withheld. <laughs> Just the fact that this comes out of his mouth two weeks after Martin Luther King Jr., who is literally fighting for civil rights, is <sighs> murdered, is beyond me. Is beyond me. Beyond me. I just, like, the his I hate when people compare the histories of, like, black people in America, black people in Britain. Like, it just, it's just stupid. It doesn't make sense. It's not, it's not a helpful conversation. You're not giving us anything. Um, and here Enoch Powell is. Um, I just, yeah, he mentions the quote, American Negro, quite a few times in the speech, just too many times for me, um, because it's just a null and void comparison, and based on the context of the time, just, just very insidious and ugly. He goes on, he goes on and he goes on and he goes on, and I am not going to go on like him, so we're fast forwarding towards the end, but the point we have to bring up, the River Tiber, foaming with much blood he says as i look ahead i am filled with foreboding like the roman i seem to see the river of tiber the river tiber sorry foaming with much blood the fear is palpable he's calling on virgil's words to make this make sense for him <laughs> the rivers of blood and this is why the speech is actually called this it's not the original title he didn't title his speech rivers of blood this is the most kind of famous line from it. Um, and he feels like it, people, sorry, that, you know, read this and, and the, the newspapers and history, shall we say, has, has titled this speech to Rivers of Blood speech. Um, in that kind of section, he starts with um, the legislation proposed in the Race Relations Bill is 
um, a problem, essentially, because it's showing that immigrant communities, and this is a quote, immigrant communities can organise to consolidate their members, to agitate and campaign against their fellow citizens, and to overawe and dominate the rest with legal weapons which the ignorant and ill-informed have provided. So we say in this um, race relations bill is basically too many, too many rights for the immigrants, and it's them campaigning against their fellow citizens, i.e. white people, which is interesting, then he's, he's referring to them as citizens, which they are, um, but um, if they're all citizens, then why shouldn't they all have the same rights? Why shouldn't there be a law? that says people should not be allowed to discriminate, knowing that there's been so much discrimination beyond me. But essentially, that is the Rivers of Blood speech. Um, it's very much... He uses many other more examples um, of different constituents and this anecdotal evidence that he might or might not have made up. Um, I'm not going to suggest that he has or hasn't. Maybe I should have done more research to find out if these people actually existed, but I haven't. My apologies. Um, and so, yeah, he is using this speech uh, to manipulate people, obviously, into kind of thinking that this discrimination, this race relations bill is a problem and it will cause somehow more racial tensions um, and it will be the start of black, brown people having domination over British soil. Um so let's think about the impact of the speech in our final section, then and today. So the next day he was sacked. Amazing. Wonderful. He was cast out of the Conservative shadow cabinet, effectively ending his political ambitions. Um, he really did go out with a bang. Um, you know, he, throughout his political career, he did continue to be vocal on issues around immigration. But he actually left the Conservative Party in 1974. I don't know why it took him so long to leave, because he was cast out of the shadow cabinet and sacked. But I think he would have still been an MP. Um, and he joined, anyway, the Ulster Unionist Party um, after a while. Um, yeah, so, you know, that was kind of the immediate impact. But then there was this kind of split within the British public where people actually supported Enoch Powell and were furious that he'd been sacked. And they actually protested and marched for Enoch Powell and his right to say things like that because they agreed and... For the most part, all the things he was saying about the fact that he's saying things that so many people want to say and can't say kind of were true because these people then came out in support of him and were, say, were not saying that they couldn't say it because they were definitely saying it, um, but holding his views. And then there were obviously people that were protesting his views and what he'd said and were obviously happy that he'd been sacked but maybe wanted even more to be done to him so you've got this kind of really polarizing speech here that's really splitting people it's very divisive um and it divides the conservative party now you know we've seen that in politics like in the past like five ten years like whether it's labor or the conservatives being split essentially over different issues um whether it be you know the environment tax uh whatever um, being more left-wing, right-wing, centre, mid, whoever. But um, the fact that this speech does that for the Conservatives in 1968, I think, is also something quite important. Um, almost overnight, it placed on the front line the national debate about immigration, integration and race relations, um, and it forces conversation to the fore because of this speech. Now, the impact on society today, This most of this research I did was thinking about 2018, um, especially in this kind of post-Brexit, pre-referendum world we had, although I did, we did the 
this country leave with a no deal? I don't even know. I, I tuned out of all debates to do with Brexit because it really was hurting my head. Um, so assuming in twenty eighteen there was there wasn't um a consensus because Boris Johnson was voted in as Tory leader and then as um yeah he was voted in as Tory leader twenty nineteen and then there was the election in December twenty nineteen and then Brexit happened twenty twenty or the like the end of twenty nineteen and then twenty twenty was like the the deadline for them to do the debates or have a chat and I don't know if that happened or not I'm just I'm just living I just know we're not in the EU anymore um so the kind of 50 year point was 2018 when all that was happening but I think the fact that this speech still kind of resonates and provokes um in 2018 the BBC actually decided to broadcast a full recording of this speech but it was quite problematic because an actor like acted the speech out um obviously it was on the radio um and then there was like critical analysis afterwards but apparently like the way that um this actor did that job I think he did it a bit too well and it was quite unsettling um especially in this kind of Brexit age and also two decades after Enoch Powell's death um like his all the things he kind of prophesized like didn't materialize like there's no rivers of blood in this country and the black man doesn't have the whip hand over the white man and black people don't want dominion domination and all those things and you know I mean <laughs> as far as I'm aware <laughs> I think a lot of black people feel like second class citizens still so yeah, equality wasn't even reached um even by a margin so yeah his his prophecies didn't materialize but it was quite problematic I think to hear that speech and to have it kind of presented in the way it was on the BBC in 2018 um so apart from that most people see this as very divisive very inflammatory and having flamed racist viewpoints um disguised in a way with like political rhetoric and this kind of i'm speaking on behalf of those who are voiceless conversation populist argument um and i think that what we can take from it really is the political climate at the time and how a speech like this would legitimise racism. Um, I think it's important to think back to the National Front who really wanted to make, and I quote from last week's episode, racialism respectable. Um, and the fact that the views of the National Front essentially were being portrayed in this um, Conservative Party member speech, um, an elected MP an Cambridge-educated ex-serviceman who climbed the ranks of, of the army so fast, um, a very, like, respectable character within society is saying all of this. It really does give racism a respectable face, and I think that is probably one of the scariest things about it because it's easy to pass off the National Front as kind of working-class, uneducated maybe unable to critically think but this is a man who you know is has a whole career in life before um as a scholar as a really intelligent man a man that's thrived off the benefits of empire but then in the reverse doesn't want to see his country impacted it's very interesting um Enoch Powell's river of blood speech um it's heartbreaking as well knowing that um the black people, the African, Caribbean, Asian communities that would have had to listen to this, see it printed in the newspapers and see it legitimise some of the racism that they were being faced with every day. 
that's that's what I take from it. That's what hurts me. Um, and I remember being very emotional the first time I listened to this speech um, or read it. And that was in sixth form, I think. I think we did it in economics. We were looking at immigration. Uh, quite cool that my teacher brought in Enoch Powell, actually. Um, way to go with diversifying and, you know, talking about issues that actually make sense in a quite a, a non-traditional sense. We didn't learn about it in history. It was in economics. Um, I think we were looking at, yeah, immigration and the impacts the economic impact that is so yeah that's enough of me rambling on about my a-level education and all things racism as usual but i hope you have enjoyed this episode uh and i believe that the next episode i will post will be in december which means that it's christmas basically and i have decided to take a break from all histories that are negative and racist and sad so we're going to actually be looking at what I hope to be Christmas traditions and Christmas foods because I really enjoyed doing the Aki and Selfish episode last year or was it this year I don't remember it was a while ago but I want to do more episodes like that so I think we're going to look at some Caribbean traditions um, from different Caribbean islands um, Christmas traditions whether that be food or like festivals or um, you know different things that they do So that should be more fun for the next four episodes over Christmas. And as you get into the festive period, I hope that you are well and blessed and safe and be careful out there because these strains are straining. These variants are being varianting. (laughs) It doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean. Have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.